Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. Hello. I'm Rick Barrera, your host for the Heart of Leaders podcast. Our guest today is Walt Rakowicz, former CEO of Prologis. Walt is responsible for one of the biggest turnarounds in Wall Street history, and he says he did it with heart-led leadership. In this episode, we're going to get to know Walt. In our next episode, we're going to learn about his turnaround and how he did it. Welcome, Walt. Thank you. Great to be on. So where did you grow up? Well, Rick, um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so while I, I live in Denver, Colorado today, and, and I, I do love the Broncos and the Abs and the, the Nuggets and the Rockies and all that good stuff here, I'm still a big Steeler, Penguin, and Pirate fan. So I still have some family that lives back there, too. I didn't know that. I grew up in Bradford, Pennsylvania. Oh, is that right? More specifically, Derrick City. Bradford's a suburb of Derrick City. But uh, right. yeah, so I didn't know that. We had Pennsylvania roots in common. We do. That's great. That's great. It's, a, it's an awesome place in the world, that's for sure. Yeah, it's pretty, that's for sure. The rolling hills of Pennsylvania are some of the prettiest I've ever seen. Yep. So tell me a little bit about your family. You know, um, Rick, I, I come from a very humble background. My um, father owned a grocery store in the in the 60s, the 50s and the 60s, and and then later became an assistant manager at a local Kmart. And then in his retirement, he ushered for the Steelers and, and the Pirates. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, isn't that fun? Uh, my mother, on the other hand, uh, held all sorts of jobs from working at a donut shop to picking vitamins at General Nutrition. And she also cleaned office buildings for several years. And so, as I said, you know, very humble background. Um, I also have two sisters who both live in Pittsburgh right now with their families. And um, so... That's that's my family background. My father unfortunately passed away uh, about ten years ago. My mother is still living, um, although she's in an assisted living facility now. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. So, what made you decide to be an accountant? <laughs> well, <laughs> I um, you know I I went to Penn State University um, for my undergraduate degree, and frankly, they had one of the best accounting programs in the country. And, uh, you know, I was, I was also, uh, kind of a logical numbers guy uh, growing up. And so frankly, it just seemed to fit me at the time. So although I only ended up staying in the industry for about four years, I, I worked for PwC, which at that point in time was Price Waterhouse. And that was after, after I graduated from college, it, it really turned out to be a great way to start my career uh, because, you know, as an accountant, I could I could kind of understand the financial conditions of companies. I probably audited in the four years I was there anywhere from 25 to 35 companies. And, and you know, you get a chance to look under the hood a little bit and see how they made money. And I also think, it, you know, really taught me discipline. I mean, it was not beyond the firm to have us working 60 to 70 
80-hour weeks. Um, so, you know, you, you, you really gather discipline pretty quickly. And I really think that that was one of the most important characteristics of, uh, you know, being a successful businessman or woman for that matter is, is just that the discipline that the, the, the job showed me and early jobs show you. So it, it turned out to be a great thing. Uh, obviously not something I pursued. I did become a CPA, but ultimately it was really what it gave me, um, sort of the basis, the foundation for moving forward that I really, I really thought was important. So did you work in the family business? Did you work in the grocery store when you were growing up? I did, actually. I, I did gross, uh, work in the grocery store from time to time, although my dad was probably laughing at what I was really getting accomplished. But <laughs> I, I, used to like to, I used to like to be in the grocery store because I could eat candy. And, and more importantly, you know how they used to have those baseball cards. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, with, yeah. It, you know, when you buy the baseball cards and, and the gum together and um, you'd take out, take out the gum. I'd give the gum to my parents and I'd take and look through the baseball cards to see if there was anyone that I liked. And if I didn't, would put, you know, put it back in the package for someone else to buy. <laughs> <laughs> I was always looking for Roberto Clemente or Willie Stargell or some, something like that. So anyway, it was, uh, it was fun working there, but, um, um, ultimately I, I did become an accountant, which was, which was probably more productive for me over time. So how'd you get in the commercial real estate business? Well, um, after the four years of accounting at Price Waterhouse, I decided to get an MBA and was fortunate enough to get into Harvard Business School. And so when I was there, you know, I, I really met a number of people from a number of different backgrounds and frankly just started asking them questions. And I found that real estate was sort of a good match for me because it sort of married numbers in financings and you think about building a real estate, you know, building in real estate, you got to finance it and you got to understand the numbers, but it combined those things with something tangible, something I could see, something I could feel, something I could touch. I, I just love looking at buildings. I look, I like, I like to look at design, uh, designs of buildings, love to see them go up. And, um, so I'm kind of a tangible guy. I mean, it probably fits with, the numbers and the logical part of me, I think I would be a horrible software developer because I can't, you can't, you can't see it. You can't touch it. In, in the case of real estate, um, it just fit me better. I mean, I, I just really needed to, you know, see a plot of land, visualize a building and watch it being built. And, well, yeah. and so I, I love, I love that. Well, yeah. When you're done, there's, there's something that was, that's there that wasn't there before. Right. That's exactly right. And there's some legacy there too, if you build it and um, something you can talk about with people. So anyway, I, I just found it to be, and, and it was also simple. It's really kind of a simple business. As I said, you know, I couldn't be a software developer. I don't know that I would ever be a great engineer, but I could, I could see something go up and I could realize how to finance it. And it really just fit me. And I, you know, it, you never know coming out of business school or coming out of school, if you're going to, if you're going to hit it right, but it turned out to be just a home run for me and my career. And, and, um, it's nice to settle into something reasonably early. I was at the ripe old age of 27 at the time. And so I stayed in the industry pretty much my entire career. Well, that's cool. So, so where did you start? Who where was your first commercial real estate job? So my first job was uh, a job that I then kept for 10 years. In fact, it's interesting. I only worked for two employers since I was 27. 
the first employer was a company called Trammell Pro Company. They used to be the world's largest development firm back in the 80s and early 90s. And I worked for them in Los Angeles. And basically for the first three years, I leased the buildings. And then after that, I started building and building warehouses. That became my specialty. I, I had no idea what, you know, what a warehouse, I mean, I knew what a warehouse looked like, but I never thought that I would, that's what I would do, but it became a specialty of mine. And, um, we were building warehouses around the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, something like 40% of all shipments come into Long Beach and Los Angeles that are imported into the United States. So it, and you know, when they get off the, they get off the boat, they typically need to be warehoused someplace. So Los Angeles turns out to be as a very, very large warehouse market. And, and so Trammell Crow Company, the development firm I worked with, was very big in building warehouses in Los Angeles as one market. They were throughout the U.S., but that's the market that I was in. And so I became good at that. And then after 10 years, when the markets sort of fell apart in the early 90s, I went to work for a startup real estate company by the name of Security Capital Industrial, which then changed its name to Prologis. And I worked for them for 20 years, ultimately um, rising up the ranks, uh, becoming chief financial officer, uh, becoming the president, chief operating officer, and then ultimately becoming the CEO of the company as it grew. And, um, you know, our stock is um, traded on the New York Stock Exchange, or it still is today, was when I was there. And um, it's, uh, it's a company that's in the S&P 500 today. And a uh, company of, of real size and prominence in its, in its industry. It also builds um, and leases industrial buildings, i.e. warehouses, to companies, to ma- typically to major multinational companies throughout the world where they store their products in these buildings. Great. So how did you develop your leadership philosophy coming from the, uh, the grocery business to the commercial real estate business? Um, it's funny you'd say coming from the grocery business, but anyway, (laughs) I think like many people, we are products of our parents. And on the one hand, my mother was a go-getter. She was an incredibly positive person. For her, the glass was always half full. Looking back on that, I think that was uh, a, a great influence to me. My dad was an incredible human being. Um, people loved to work for my dad because he put others first. He was kind, honest, humble, very unassuming. And he managed people that way. You know, he won numerous awards for manager of the year at Kmart, which is interesting. I, you know, you look back on that, it didn't really hit me back then, but now I think about it. He'd come home with all these awards, accolades, and then he won Usher of the Year for the Pirates. Um, and so <laughs> he likes people. Yeah, these were big deals to him, too. And, you know, people love to work with him. They like to work with him and they like to work for him because he was a human. He just cared for others. And that's just the way he was. And, you know, that matters in management. That's incredibly important in management. And I wouldn't say that he was as focused on succeeding. That wasn't as big a deal to him. What was a big deal to him was being liked and managing people in the appropriate way. And so I, I think I'm a little bit of a blend of my mother and my dad. I, uh, my mother was just a complete go-getter 
And I have, I have certainly have some of that in me for sure. I think I'm pretty much a type A person and I get that from her. But what I get from my dad is just the human element of, um, wanting to enjoy managing people and, and frankly, thinking about management from the perspective of influence and the influence that you have on others. Um, so that's how I think I developed my leadership philosophy over time. Well, speaking of influence, who were the mentors that most influenced you? You know, outside of my mother and father, and they were, they were truly the most significant, but there, there's really only one. Um, don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of great leaders in this world, but only one that I worked with and his name was Hayden Eves. And I worked with him. He was a partner in charge of Trammell Crow. And so I worked as a partner underneath of him. So there, you know, he was my first boss in the real estate business, um, right out of business school. And so Hayden looked after his flock (laughs) of subordinates, kind of like a shepherd would look after his flock of sheep. He was, you know, continuously trying to teach you to be better um, at what you did, but in a very respectful way. He nudged you from time to time with words of wisdom when you were straying kind of in the wrong direction, uh, respectfully, of course. And um, as a reward for good work, you know, he always created some of the most memorable experiences outside of our day-to-day jobs that I can, I can ever remember. One that came to mind, and we did this every year, but one was a city slicker type trip. I mean, I don't know if you ever watched that movie, oh, yeah. City Slickers, but but Billy it Crystal. was exactly it was a Billy Crystal. It was like a carbon copy of that. We went into the <laughs> mountains in. It, I'm, not, I'm not kidding you. We went to we went into the mountains of uh, of South Dakota, and we we herded 500 cattle um, from 6,500 feet in the wintertime down to 5,000 feet. We had to pregnancy test them and we did I mean, all kinds of bizarre things, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, the bottom line was Hayden cared for his people and his people worked their butts off for him because they noticed and he would do things for people that were fun and just outside the realm of work. And, you know, it wasn't as if he didn't tell you that you were screwing up. He would tell you you were screwing up, but it was the way that he did it in a respectful way. Which was how? Give me an example. Oh, I mean, you know, he would, first of all, he would very rarely would he berate you in front of 10 other people. I mean, he was the kind of guy that would pull you aside and he would just simply say one-on-one, you know, I think you could have handled that in a different way and therefore not made an example out of you in front of others, but, you know, truly cared about, making you better and making you also still look good in the eyes of your colleagues. You know what I'm saying? Yep. It was that type of guy. And, and he did that um, a lot. And therefore you, you just realized that he cared a lot for you. So he would, he would be my boss slash mentor uh, that I probably learned the most from in terms of managing people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Well, so it's, you know, it's interesting. Several of our guests have talked about, their first boss and what an influence they had. Yeah. And so, you know, I sit here on the outside and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what a responsibility that first boss has to get you started off on the right foot and to be a heart-led leader and and how important that is to shaping the rest of your career. It really is. Unfortunately, I wouldn't say that I had a number of great bosses 
in the accounting industry. They were, um, you know, you just had to work too hard. You almost were working like slaves and to a certain degree. I hate to say it, but they, they treated you that way back in the 70s and in the early 80s. I think public accounting firms are much different today. Um, but he was truly my first best boss. <laughs> but I didn't meet him. I didn't meet him until my until I was about 27 years old. Wow. So I know that you have a deep belief in charity and in having your teams deeply involved in charitable work. Tell us about that. Well, I believe that leadership starts with a servant mentality. I think you lead to serve other people. Now, not everybody believes that, but that's my belief. And I think when you're in that mindset, you know, it's easier to put aside things like ego, pride, and self-serving decisions, all of which, in my opinion, eventually lead to the demise of good leaders. I also believe that companies aren't just in business to make a profit. I think that they need, of course, to be in business, and so therefore they need to make a profit. (laughs) But but people want to work for companies that have a purpose these days, you know, that that bring people together to accomplish great things. And I think charity accomplishes both. I mean, I think it's the greatest form of servant leadership first. And I think it helps galvanize people into something purposeful over and beyond making money. And I think it may be, frankly, the best retention tool that we have. And I saw it at Prologis. I thought, I mean, I saw when I took over the company, we'll get into this in a little bit. It was really a company that was in disarray. But one of the things we really did was we, We've tried to focus outside of our problems. We tried to get our employees to think that there was something broader that we were at work to do other than just, you know, pull the company, which was close on the brink of bankruptcy, out of bankruptcy. And um, it was really interesting. I mean, it gave people a purpose, gave people a mindset that it wasn't just all about us. And um, I really think it, it helped galvanize our employee base. And I believe it was a strong retention tool. Not that that's the reason why we did it, but I mean, if you can get your entire company thinking about servant leadership and have a servant mentality, I think you can accomplish a lot of things. And frankly, I think you're going to become better with your customers over time as well. And so, yeah, I, I think charity is something more than just, you know, it's the right thing to do. I think it has a heck of a lot of benefits um, to a leader and so not only do we do it because it's the right thing we d- to do, but I believe that it creates that servant mentality thinking um, that I think is, is very, very important. Yeah, of putting others first. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's very insightful. So, so did you do, did you pick like one charity that you all did as a company or did you do multiple charities or how did you do that? Well, in our particular office in the in the corporate headquarters, we had um, between three, uh, depending on the time frame, between 300 and 350 people. And so we, yeah, we did pick, we picked three of them, um, but we picked one that we probably spent the majority of uh, our employee time on, which was junior achievement in our case. But we also had um, work that we did with uh, Children's Hospital. We also uh, did some work with inner city organizations and we gave people, when you have an office that's that big, you try to give people a flavor of things that they can do and, and have, you know, have them pick and choose. And then you give them hours off 
to be able to do it. You give them credit. If they, you, you match any contributions that they want to make to their organizations or to different organizations and the like. And so it becomes a pretty comprehensive program. In many of our other offices where there were only 10 or 15 employees, and that was the typical office outside, we had probably 100 of those offices outside of the corporate headquarters. What we tried to do was um, be a little more democratic about it and had the leader of the organization pull all of the people in the organization and try to pick one thing that they could all focus on together. So it really kind of depended on the size But having said that, we would still compensate people for hours that they wanted to spend in their own charity. We would still match uh, their financial uh, gifts that they were going to make to their charity and the like. So there there were some programs that were focused on, if you will, galvanizing people. And then there were other programs that were focused on helping you with whatever your passion was. That's amazing. So you paid them to go work for charities. We paid them to go work for charities. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fabulous. So, what are your passions outside of work and charity? What do you do for fun? Huh. Um, well, I I love to travel. I've been fortunate enough to run a global company and see the world, and so I've traveled to all fifty states, and I've traveled to over fifty countries. And I, I you know, when you travel three hundred thousand miles a year, as I did as a CEO and a CFO and president of the company you just get to see a lot and it gets in your, it gets in your veins. And so I, I tend to do a significant amount of travel with my wife, um, some for fun and some, some still on business. I love to exercise. Um, I think it's perhaps the single most important thing that I do every week. Um, and I try to keep a consistent regiment of, of exercise and weight, weightlifting and cardio and the like. And I, I do love to golf. I'm, I'd say I'd, be, I'd become an avid golfer. I wish my score scores could be a little bit lower. <laughs> um, but, but then again, if they were lower, I wish that they would be lower still. And so right. it's, something, it's something that my wife and I do together, which is great. She loves to golf. I love to golf. We both look at things that we, you know, you just, you get older in life, you look at things that you can do with your spouse. And so um, it's really special to me because we do it together. We probably golf at least once to twice per week in, for call it six to eight months out of the year. And then when it gets cold here, we try to go away um, and, and golf in a warmer weather climate kind of in the wintertime. But um, those are probably three of the things that I spend the most time doing outside of board work and, um, and, and other things that I do in the business side. So uh, have you played St. Andrews yet? I have played St. Andrews, um, both the old course and the new course, and I, it just ate me up. <laughs> I was going to say, what'd you score? So, <laughs> um, we won't well, go there. I played, it many, <laughs> I played it many years ago before I got, I got halfway decent, and I can just tell you that it was three figures. <laughs> okay. So it was pretty ugly. <laughs> so you said you've traveled all over the world. What's your favorite place you've ever been to? Oh, the, the most favorite city in the world for me to go to is Rome. I just absolutely love it. Wouldn't want to live there, but I just think there are just so many things to do there and just the relics and, and the history that's there is just over and beyond any place that I've ever seen in the world. I mean, I love London. I love Paris. I love Sydney, Australia. Um, there's so many places I love, but none of them do I love more than Rome. So, 
what one piece of career advice would you give to our listeners who want to be better heart-led leaders? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I think, um, I, there's probably a couple things that come to my mind. First, I, I, let's, whether you be a heart-led leader or not, I, nothing's a surrogate for hard work. I mean, hours do matter. The more time you spend in something, the better off you'll be. Uh, people have heard that over and over and over. But from my perspective, I think one of the reasons for uh, my success is I just outworked everybody in terms of my time. But I think, you know, we all also lead in one way or the other. And I think you got to pay very close attention to how you do it. And I mentioned this before in charity, but I, I truly believe that the more you can put others first, the more successful that you're going to be. And that's hard for me. Well, I shouldn't say for me. I think it's hard for any leader. You're just promoted into the job. You're feeling good about yourself. There's an element of ego. There's an element of pride in leadership. And you just have to be really careful that you don't allow those things to, you know, take you off your feet. Uh, because they, they lead to arrogance. And when, as soon as that begins to happen, the water cooler talk uh, starts and your subordinates start talking about how you're a different person and how you're not thinking about them and so forth and so on. And you almost have to deliberately put yourself into that, back into that servant mentality, which, which is to say the more you get promoted, the less you become about yourself and the more you become about others. And as I said, that's a really hard thing because you're getting promoted. You're the one that's getting promoted, right? And so it's uh, it's easy to get caught up in the pride and the ego of, of leadership. And so if I had to give you one bit of major advice, it's just that the more that you can put others first, the better off you're going to be as a leader. So who do you think is the most amazing leader of our time? Oh, I think that's a... I think that's a hard one. Um, I, I think, I, 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 first of all, Rick, you know me well enough to know that I'm, I, you know, I'm a man of faith, and so I know this isn't a, um, this isn't a religious podcast, and so I'm not going to make it one. But it, it could become one. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I can't really tell you um, in our time who that leader is because there's so many good ones, and I, I don't really cherish anybody today, but I, you know, I can tell you that I spend the majority of the time that I read, um, I, I, I try to seek wisdom and I, and you know, so you know, this probably, I know many of the listeners obviously don't, but I'm, I'm an avid reader of the Bible. And so I read, but I, but I read segments of the Bible a lot and really try to gain, gain wisdom. There are three areas. One is in the Psalms, one's in the Proverbs and one's in the new Testament. And most of the right writings come from three people. And so I, I look at the leadership of David in the, in, the, in the Bible, and he wrote the majority of the Psalms, and Solomon wrote the majority of the Proverbs, and, and Jesus was lived out in the New Testament. And I, so for me, I, I can't tell you, I don't really pattern my life around leaders today. I'm sure that there are leaders that I can, if I thought a lot about, I mean, I love Winston Churchill and you know, we've all read about Abraham Lincoln and his courage, and there's just so many of them. But, but, the, but you know, I, I'd be almost telling you that I like them, but I don't really read about them. The people that I read about or the things that I read about 
are 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 David's Psalms, Solomon's Proverbs, and and about Christ in the New Testament. And I think if you follow the teachings in these three books, I think you're going to learn just about all you need to know about leadership. <laughs> I really do, and and that may not be what some of the listeners may want to hear, but from but you're asking me, so it's easy for me to talk about it. That. Those are my leaders. <laughs> no, I, listen, I, I, you know, I, I want you to just tell the truth, right? That's where, you know, that's what we're yep. all about here um, of, you know, what influenced you and how do you think about it? And, and you know, servant leadership uh, certainly, I think, had a, you know, sort of Christian roots. So, yep. you know, certainly, you know, in alignment with that. I mean, I, I read the Bible as literature when I was in college. Um grew up Catholic. So there, you know, had that whole background, but, but in college, you know, really took courses where you, we studied his literature and what were the times and what were people thinking and doing and what's the history and what's the context. And, you know, I mean, there, there certainly are incredible leadership lessons, you know, throughout. No question. And, and for me, you know, we're going to talk in this next segment about, um, the turnaround of Prologis, but for me, it's amazing how my faith helped me endure the hardships throughout my career and allow, allow me to rebound even stronger. And I think all of us need some rock to stand on, and everybody's a little bit different about that. My rock is, is much of the teachings that I read in the Bible. And so that's that's kind of the thing that hit me whenever you said the most amazing leader. And, uh, that's that's what I probably follow the most. Yeah. Anyway. Well, one of my favorite quotes in the Bible is, you know, thou art Petros, and upon this rock I built my church, you know, Peter yep. was the, you know, Petros is rock, right? So right. anyway, all, that all comes full circle. Yeah, amen. <laughs> well, Walt, it's been awesome. Uh, we're going to end this segment, and uh, and then we're going to get you back for uh, for the next segment where we get into learning about transparency and uh, the turnaround at Prologis. Sure. Look forward to it. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Would you like to hang out with Walt in person? You can. Just make the decision to join us for the next Heart of Leaders training program in Denver. Call us right now at 858-248-3162 or go to heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com where we blog, post articles, and book reviews and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.